If you will, take your copies of Scripture and turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. It has been said that grace finds people where they are, but grace never leaves them where it finds them. I think this is a true statement. Uh, You've never shown grace to your child or friend or a family member with the intent of leaving them in the condition that they were in, the condition that required grace. Grace was loving and extended and demonstrated out of your love. And in extending grace, be it bypassing some judgment or whatever the case may have been, it was intended to help that person move beyond that point, that particular burden, that failure, uh, that sin. Uh, This is a true statement, I believe. When God, by His grace, saves a person, that grace is never intended to leave the person in the place they were when He found them. The psalmist said it this way, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of a miry bog, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The psalmist, in a poetic prose, is describing or recalling a time, uh, very likely a specific time in his life, when his well-being in some way was seriously threatened. The Lord was gracious and raised him and delivered him from the miry bog. Thinking about that text, certainly the psalmist may have been delivered from a literal miry bog. But it seems that the psalmist has painted a picture for us to see the serious spiritual condition that he was in. He was being overtaken by sin. And God acted graciously. And the grace was intended to remove him from the danger and the destruction of the sin and to place him in a secure setting. And then notice the change in his heart. His attitude was out of worship, singing a song, longing for God, praising God, looking to Him. When God visits us with His grace, He doesn't intend to leave us where we are. Hannah Grace, that's true of you. Blake, that's true of you. And I only identify you today because your journey has recently begun. But that is true of every one of us here who profess Christ. If we profess Christ, we only do it because He has extended His grace to us to be saved. And He never intended that to be just to be saved. But as we looked at and as we heard in our confession this morning, uh, it is to cling to Christ, to cling to Him, to long for Him, to find Him as our absolute and full satisfaction. So far we have seen how God has responded uh, to Israel's cries of desperation. In chapter 2, verse 24, I think is an important text, we read, And God heard their groaning, 
And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew them. Listen to those words again. He heard their groaning. He remembered His covenant. He saw them, and He knew them. In that verse alone, we're reminded that God keeps His promises, all of them. We've mentioned that God had promised to Abraham a nation of people, and He had told Abraham about His people, and that He would have a land, and that they would dwell in a land that was not theirs, and be ruled by another people for 400 years. So God is about keeping all of His promises. He's also not insensitive to the hurt, and the pain, and the hardship and struggles of people. And, and I believe that's true of all people. God is not insensitive to anyone regarding those things. But I want to tell you, when we're talking about His people, He is especially not insensitive to that. In fact, Exodus shouts over and over and over again God's care for His people. We're going to talk some about that this morning. So while it's true of all persons, it's especially true as it pertains to His people. But be reminded, not a people who are God's people because they deserve to be God's people. Not a people who are God's people because they are good or better than. But rather the opposite is true. People who are called God's people because He claims them as His own by His sheer grace. And remember, grace is never extended with the intent of the person remaining in the place where they have begun. So in the case of Israel, God acted in the fullness of time, and He sent a leader, we have been hearing about this leader, Moses, deliverer, someone to represent him and his saving work. And he did this to show them and to show us that God is a redeeming God. We have sung about God's redemption this morning. We have talked about how Jesus has acted and come to save. We shouldn't be surprised that God is showing in the Exodus that He is a saving God and that there is a Savior that is to come. And I'm reminded of that when I read what Paul wrote to the church uh, of the Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He doesn't leave us where we were. He brings us to a place into His presence, puts His Spirit in us, and now our heart and our attitude is changed toward Him, and we look to Him because we are His children, and we cry out to Him, Abba, Father. And He says, so you are no longer, listen to this language, and then think about Israel being delivered out of slavery in the Exodus. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
and if a son, then an heir through God. I hope you hear that. An enslaved people set free by the grace of God through the redeeming and delivering work of the Son of God, changing the life of the one who is saved. Grace does not leave us where it finds us. But now we're going to get into our text, and here's the point. But the path to where grace takes us isn't always an easy path. I want you to hear that again. The path where grace takes us isn't always an easy path. I think we misunderstand grace in that. Because grace is about bringing us from where we are to where God intends us to be. And most of us, a lot of times, we will think that that is done in one fell swoop and that that work of grace in saving us initially what we would call justifying us, that that is enough and I can stay here justified and I don't have to worry about hell, but that is not the intent of the work of grace. The intent of God in His work of grace is not just in our justification, but it is in our sanctification and in bringing us through and changing us, conforming us into the image of His Son conforming us into the likeness of Christ. And that is no easy path. And the reason for that is because we are messed up really big with sin. And then the other reason is, is that most of us aren't quick studies. We just aren't. And we began to see that last week when Booney walked us through chapters 13, 14, and 15. In fact, when we see Israel with their back to the Red Sea, their face toward the Egyptian forces, we might say, well, for them, that wasn't a smart move. And we would be right, except every place that God leads us is exactly where we need to be, no matter how hopeless it looks. That's the reason that I am often cautious about giving counsel uh, to people when I'm uncertain as to what God's doing. Oftentimes the easy path, the one of least resistance, the one that makes the most sense to us in conventional wisdom, and remember, conventional wisdom is God's wisdom. It's, it's not God's wisdom in conventional wisdom. He's given all wisdom. But conventional wisdom, sometimes directing us to the easy things, are not the way that God is going to bring about the work in changing us and moving us from where we are or were to where He is leading us. So He took Israel on that hard path, and that is a picture for us to help us to see that, that this is a work of God's grace. The easy way does not often prepare us to accomplish the things that God has intended for us to accomplish. But rather, the track 
of tears, hardship, testing, difficulty, and trials will lead us down that path. Reminded back in 2011, uh, Mark Kramer, Marcus King, and I, we were preparing to run the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. And we were training through the summer. And it was a particularly hot summer. Nothing about training was easy. And a week, about two weeks before uh, the event, uh, I had strained my Achilles and it felt like an old screen door for those of you who've been to those old farmhouses and you've opened and closed those screen doors and you've heard it every time you open and close it. That's what my Achilles tendon felt like. And I just kept, I just kept, just kept pushing forward. And then one week before the race, I face planted, broke my nose, and wound up with sutures and stuff in my face. I got up, I set my nose, I was ready to go again. And one week from that day, I ran that race. That hardship and difficulty and the challenges associated with that helped me be able to get to where I was going to do what at least I had set out to do. That analogy breaks down, the story's true, but that analogy breaks down. But the point is, is that God most often in His work of grace in our life does not deliver us into an easy life because we can't handle the easy. It takes the hardship, the tears, the pain, the suffering, and the struggle, and we saw that with Israel. And we continue to see that with Israel. Last week, what did we see? We saw that the Red Sea was a place of salvation. The very first act that God brings them to after He delivers them is to this place of helping them see that He is a saving God. It was gracious. For their future, Israel needed to know that God was a God fully capable of defending them and saving them when there seemed to be no hope of salvation. You may be here today and you may think there's no hope for me. There's no hope for my circumstances. I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what your hardship is. But in looking to Christ, it is not about managing the circumstances in your life. It is about turning to a God who saves saves the soul. And when the soul is saved and rests in soul salvation, the circumstances now are not as painful. They don't have the same impact on us because we're not looking for deliverance from circumstances. We are looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for a relationship with God. And that's what God was teaching Israel there as they were at the Red Sea. We would have presumed that after having seen all that they had seen, that they would have gotten to the Red Sea and they would have just said, 
well, God's going to save us. But that's not what they felt. They felt that they were doomed and they felt that there was no hope. And then God saves them. And then we would think, well, we're ready to march on and everything is okay. We have seen what God has done and He has saved us here at the Red Sea. And we have seen all of this take place and we are ready to go. But we will soon find out that that is not the case. Why? Because sinners are not quick studies. The Bible calls them sheep. And sheep are dumb. That's the reason that Isaiah said, uh, through the Holy Spirit, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then we hear these words, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And as much as we see that the Red Sea is a place of salvation, look, if you will, in chapter 15, verse 22, and we're going to pick up in there. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness. They found no water. They came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses. What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. The Red Sea was a place of salvation. What do we hear about more? More is a place of testing. Why does God test us? Does He test us because we are unsure about where we are? That He is unsure about what our decisions are going to be? No, He doesn't test us for those reasons. He tests us so that we will come to know if we are believing or not believing. He is testing us so that we can come to know the level of devotion that we have for God. He is testing us so that we can see if our statement of profession is accompanied with loving obedience to Him. He tests them. So Mara becomes a place of testing. A place where their hearts are revealed. The condition of their hearts are revealed. We would think that after they had come from the Red Sea, that they would be ready to trust God in anything. But they run to a place where the bitter water, reminding them of the bitterness of Egypt, uh, now they are tested and they grumble. And what does God do? God makes the water sweet. What is He telling them? He is telling them that God makes a difference in the course of our lives and He turns the bitterness of this life into sweetness as we trust and as we rest in Him. God is teaching them that life is sweet with Him. Hannah Grace, life is sweet with God. Circumstances are not. The circumstances are bitter and they're hard, like the bitterness of the water at Marah. But because God is there, life is sweet. Life is sweet. I'm not sure if your life is sweet. 
I don't know anything about your circumstances. I know at times my responses to my circumstances reveal, and Janice can tell you, that my life is not sweet. But it is not because Jesus is not sweet. It's not because God is not faithful and not because He's not sweet. It's because my trust in Him, my dependence upon Him at that time in a trusting, loving way is not there. Why? Because I'm acting more like a sheep than I am a quick study of the work of God's grace. Let me ask you this. Does your life reveal that you are more of a quick study of the work of God's grace and His power? Or more like a sheep? We see with Israel, we point to them and oftentimes look at them as being negative. They're really, they are more like us. And we are most like them. Mar was a place of testing. Then they move, if you will, look in chapter the last part of chapter 15. There the Lord made a statue for them and a rule, and there He tested them. We just read that, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all of His statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Now I want you to get that picture in your mind. They're in a de desert, they're in a wilderness, and now they come upon this beautiful oasis. A place where what happens? Well, it becomes a place of rest for them. Why? Well, God knew that they needed a time of reflection. He knew that they needed a time of rest. This is the work of God's grace. His continued work of grace in their life as He moves them from where they were. And we are talking about this in terms of a physical movement all along the way. God is pointing to this as a spiritual movement in the lives of all people and most especially in the lives of those who are trusting in Him. Elam becomes a place of rest. Why? Because God is good and gracious. And those seasons of rest are to prepare us for the long journey of change and sanctification because there are going to be harder times. Why? Because grace does not leave us where we were, not even in this place of rest, not even in an oasis. So what would I tell you today? I would tell you that if you are experiencing a season where you would determine and say that my life is like an oasis, I am telling you that it will be short-lived. If God is going to sanctify you, and if He has saved you, He is going to sanctify you, because our tendency will be to want to stay there, and we can't stay there. Because that does not fulfill the purpose of God. God has not created us for our own pleasures. He has created us and He has saved us for His pleasure to do His work. For His pleasure to do His work. And we're going to see that in just a minute. 
But we continue to see that there is a grumbling people. From Elam, notice what happens in chapter 16. The congregation of the people of Israel, after they rested, they came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. So they're on their way to Sinai. We're going to get to Sinai this week, but we'll begin to deal with Sinai next week. But they get to Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against, here we had a grumbling people again, grumbling against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So what happens? Well, the wilderness of sin becomes a place again where God shows them by His grace, even in the midst of their grumbling, that He is capable of providing I want you to hear this progression. Hear the progression. There is nothing that we needed and nothing that they needed that God was not going to provide. Why? Because He always keeps His promises. And even in the midst of their grumbling, God is going to keep His promise. He is going to be gracious toward them. And what does He do? Well, we read on and we find that He gives them manna, in the morning, and quail in the evening. We pointed back to that in our confession today, and I hope you picked up on it, because it was this very issue of the manna that centuries later, okay, hundreds of years later, people had forgotten. It wasn't Moses that gave them that bread. The bread of life and their being sustained as a nation and as a people. And we'll talk more next week about this national covenant and this, 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 the broader scheme of the covenant that God has in mind. But this whole thing that God is doing here, He is giving them bread, and in giving them bread and sustaining them, He is sustaining them for His purposes. He is saving them. And that's the reason that Jesus said when He shows up on the scene, I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. God gave that bread that day, and He is giving this bread this day. He is giving me to you. And the manna and all of God's provisions are pointing to the fact that God is gracious and He does provide. But then notice what happens. They continue to move on. Look in chapter 17. And the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages uh, according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at uh, Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? 
They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? They were pushing against God. Pushing against God. And God is warning them. How does He warn them? Well, God comes and stands with Moses at the rock. They are wondering, is God among us? God comes and stands at the rock with Moses. He started when He gave His name, the Lord, to reveal Himself to them to reveal Himself to His people, and He is not going to stop. And they are wondering, does He exist, and is He with us? The people question is God is with them. Isn't it interesting that with all the people that seen, that they would question the presence of God? A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Manna being given every day, quail being given at night. Water coming when water's needed. Salvation at the Red Sea. Salvation on the night of the first Passover. And yet they are saying, is God even with us? Does He care? The Lord is at work revealing Himself and yet the people continue to quarrel and grumble against Him and against his deliverer. You say, man, they're a terrible bunch of people. And then we read in John 6 that the people are grumbling against who? The manna from heaven, the bread of life. And you know what we do today? And we grumble against the bread of life. And for those who reject Christ, you are grumbling against God and pushing against Him. And He warned and said, I will come and stand on the mountain and I'm going to give them water. Just track through any of the Gospels. Just see over and over again the rejection of Christ and then think about your own life. Maybe your family members' lives. Maybe your children's lives, your grandchildren's lives. Think about your own life. Are you pushing against Christ and rejecting Him? If you are, you're rejecting God. And that it was exactly what God was standing there for with Moses is to let them know that when you push against the one that I have here to deliver you, you are pushing against me. And when you reject him, you have rejected me. Remember what God had already told Moses? He said, you're going to speak for me and then you are going to speak to your brother Aaron 
and he's going to receive that word as if it came from me, and then he's going to speak it. Why? Because God was intent on revealing himself in his grace. His grace was never intended to leave them in Egypt. It wasn't intended to leave them at the Red Sea. It wasn't intended to leave them in any place until he had delivered them into the promised land to carry out a specific purpose. Look, if you will, in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hand grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one side and on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. What had God taught them? That's the point. What was he teaching them? What was he moving them to? He was moving them to realize that there would be battles that would be fought for his glory. Just like there are battles in ministry. There's battles on the mission field. There are battles in our homes. There are battles in our lives where we stand for the glory of God and we work in conjunction with the power of the Spirit of God that lives in us. Remember, we read that in Galatians, that we are made sons of God because the Spirit of God comes and moves in us and we work with Him, submitting to Him to do what? To fight these battles because God is the one who fights these battles, and he is teaching them that there will be battles to be fought. And be reminded that there's still some yet to be fought for them. There will be a lot more for their ancestors to fight as they take the promised land, all for the name of the glory of God. And there are battles for us to fight, and there are going to be battles for you to fight. And if you think that there are no spiritual battles, then what you have done is you have said, the grace of God in my life to save me and justify me is enough. But you don't get a chance to tell God what is and isn't enough. Because if you are a place where you are saying that, chances are you are not a believer. Because God does not love and extend His grace with the intent of leaving people where they are. And He's not with Israel. Now turn to chapter 19. And I'm going to introduce, in kind of a concluding way, where we're going and what we are going to do because we need to see where God is getting ready to lead and what he's getting ready to do. Chapter 19, verse 1. And on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so about three months, they've been gone now for about three months, or 
two months and going into the third. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So I want you to make a note of that. He is calling Israel to be reminded, you know what you've seen. You know what you saw in Egypt. You know what you saw at the Red Sea. You know what you saw at Meribah. You know what you saw at Rephidim. You know what you saw at Massa. You know these things. You know these things. Tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He brought them to himself. By the grace of God, he brings us to himself. Pay attention to that. It's passive, but they come. Nevertheless, they come. Now therefore, and here's covenant language, and we're going to begin to unpack the covenant next week. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, and here's the end, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He has moved them from being slaves. He is moving them by His grace to bring them to Himself, to establish Himself in their presence. They will be His people. And there is something going to become radically different about them because now they are going to represent Him as priest to all the world and there'll be a holy nation. Why? Because He is a holy God. They are going to represent Him. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> He called the elders of the people and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. He hasn't given any of the law yet. He's alluded to it. He's going to give the law. He is talking with them in the context of the covenant that he is about to, to unveil to them. And he does this and all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now so far their track record's not so good. And if we read on, their track record is not good. Okay? It's not good. That is the reason for the necessity of the grace of God and its continued work in their life. To move them from where they are to where He is taking them. 
And then Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. In other words, he comes back and says, God, they say that whatever it is you say, they're going to do. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Why? Remember their question, Is he really among us? Is he really among us? I want to close there. And you say, what's the application for us? Seems like a reasonable question, doesn't it? Is he really among us? Let me ask it in a more personal way. Is He among you as an individual? Not is He around you, but is He in you? Does the ongoing work of His grace bear witness and testimony in your life? Not in perfection, but in a direction and a heart that reveals that you are being sanctified. That you are being made more holy. That you are gaining a deeper understanding of Him and His love and His grace. That there is an increased longing for Him in your life. That there is an overwhelming passion for Him and His work and His ministry and His purpose for you. Which is not to do nothing. And I'll even point back to what Booney said. And not to give our lives and ourselves for the things of this world. And I know that sounds real preachery, but I don't know any other way to say it. Is He in you? I'm not even asking you now if you profess that. I'm asking you to ask the question, the hard question, is He really in me? If He's not, then He has revealed Himself to you today through His Word. And I would say for all of us, He's getting ready to go up on the mountain with Moses and He's going to speak and the people are going to hear and know it's Him. That same God that we sang to, all praise to Him, the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and if He's speaking into your heart now, then you're really hearing from Him. If you haven't trusted Him, trust Him. If you are trusting Him, let's look long and hard at our lives to see if there's that ongoing work of God's grace in our life moving us from where we are today to looking more like His Son 
tomorrow and next day and the next day and the next day. Let's pray together. Father, I really do believe that for most of us we have misunderstood for a long time and that somehow or another your grace toward us was to, to save us to, so we wouldn't spend eternity in hell. That's what we've been taught and that's how we've talked about you and your grace. And, and, and Father, where we have failed to be uh, honest in teaching the whole counsel of your word, forgive us and, and, and uh, open that up to us now. But help us to see, even now, that your grace is not intended to leave us where we are, not even in this moment. Because we're not there yet. We have not yet been transported into your presence yet. We've not yet seen the nations come to hear of you yet. This community has not been saturated with the gospel yet. All of our family members aren't saved yet. All of our co-workers haven't heard the gospel yet. And, and help us to see in terms of your grace, it's not about what we do, but there really is a responsibility that is connected with our identity. And if we say we're yours, then, then we have to bear responsibility of that. And, and what we do and the way in the way that we live. And, and we confess today, God, that, that we fail miserably in that. But Father, help us not to be satisfied with just saying that we fail miserably. But burden our hearts even now that we would long for you. Burden the people in this room, even in this moment, to long for you. Thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.